Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Fellowship Church. And uh, I'm going to take a few minutes and talk a little bit about what we're facing right now. I just want to thank all who are here this morning. We're attempting to, to have what we're calling a common sense approach uh, to the coronavirus. Um, question two of the catechism that we'll be talking about in Sunday school. Uh, the question is, what is God? And the, uh, this will be part of Sunday school. And the answer is that God is a creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything. Uh, he is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable. In his power and perfection, in his goodness and glory, in his wisdom, in his justice and truth. In that last phrase, it says, nothing happens except through him and by his will. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. And that's important for us to know right now in light of the, what's taking place around us. Um, in, in one sense, um, the world around us is in a panic. Um, we don't need to be in a panic because we understand that nothing happens except through him and by his will. I find it interesting that uh, of all the things that uh, the world looks at in terms of its idols, um, are all, at least for right now, they're are all uh, non-functional. You know, whether it's uh, March Madness, or whether it's NBA, or whether it's hockey, or whether it's um, any kind of entertainment. I mean, movies are not coming out right now. Um, Broadway shut down, and um, you know, the Lord is in complete control, and we just need to rest in Him. At the same time, be mindful of a few things that we talked about yesterday with the men in our, in our men's breakfast. I won't go into detail, but all of this is a reminder that we live in a broken and a sin-cursed world. Um, all creation groans, waiting for its redemption. And ever since the fall, uh, there's been catastrophes, there's been floods, there's been uh, hurricanes, um, there's been natural disasters, uh, and there's plagues that happen from time to time. Um, the uh, uh, Along with that, even though we live in a sin-cursed world, as believers, we're not exempt from the problems. Uh, we're not just being, you know, God causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And that happens in the opposite way as well. Just because we're Christian believers doesn't mean uh, that a coronavirus couldn't harm somebody. We all know that. We all know that our ultimate healing is, is in the resurrection. So we have to be aware of the fact that uh, we are affected by these things. And at the same time, we have to be aware that God is the one who establishes governments and leadership, and he's the one uh, who puts them in place. And so basically all that we're doing as a church is we're trying to be the citizens that God has called us to. First Peter 2 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, the government has said some things about what's taking place around us as far as this virus. And quite honestly, we have to all admit, because we are rebellious people, uh, we all think we know more than everybody. We all think we know more than the government. When you're an employee, you think you know more than your boss. When you're a student, you think you know more than your teacher. But we're all rebellious. And so, at the end of the day, all of us, have opinions without exception about what's really taking place. There are some people that are in complete fear and paralyzed by what may or may not happen. 
and non-functional almost. There are some that believe that something's real out there, but they think that everything that's happened is a complete exaggeration and that the, the government is on total overkill. And then there are some others that just completely distrust all news information and think the whole thing is completely ridiculous. So all of us have those opinions and we can all admit to them readily wherever we stand. But the important thing is our, certain, our opinion about that is irrelevant. What's important to us is that the government has given us instructions on how we should be operating with one another right now. And they basically ask us to be sure that uh, any group less than 100 or more than 100 doesn't meet together. And obviously, we're less than 100 as long as we take safety precautions, which are in your bulletin. We pretty much wrote those out. I've been checking on other churches, uh, Parkside Church, while I was their main pastors. Uh, they've canceled all their services. Of course, they would be meeting more than 100. Uh, John MacArthur's, the church he pastors in California. In California, they're mandated to not meet with more than 250 people. So they've decided to obey the government and to not meet at all, uh, but they're encouraging small groups to meet if they're, if they're less than that. So we need to be very careful to not mock people who are fearful, and we also need to be careful to not scorn people who think it's overblown. As believers, we check all that stuff at the door, and we come gather together, and Jesus is our king, he's head of the church, we bow before him, and we're gathering together to worship him, because we're one in him. And we're family, and we want to keep stressing that over and over. Um, as we leave the church today, the building, uh, around 12, 31 o'clock or so, a few things I just want to remind us all of is, one, there's going to be some hurting people in our congregation. Um, there's going to be people that have financial needs. Uh, there may be some that have medical needs. Uh, there may be some that are struggling emotionally and spiritually. And we need to really ask the Lord how we can continue to minister to one another. When you know people who aren't here today, um, Bev Cushing uh, called me in her immune system. She's had cancer, she's a widow. Uh, her immune system obviously is, uh, is not what it should be. And she's been encouraged by her two daughters, her granddaughters who are nurses to stay away from any gatherings whatsoever. So those of you who know her need to call her and keep in touch with her and let her know that you're praying for her. Uh, others like that, if someone's not here, please, we need to remember to check up on one another. And, and do all we can to meet the needs of uh, the body. Um, there's going to be people in our community who um, who are not Christians that you're going to rub shoulders with, who are very fearful of everything, who, who think that the skies are falling on and they have no hope in this world because they're without God and without Christ. And this is a tremendous time for us to, to as Christian believers, to be ambassadors for Christ. To, if you have the opportunity, the coronavirus is an external virus. We have an internal virus. It's called sin. And there may be opportunities for us to give the gospel to people during this difficult time. And so um, we should be aware of those things as well. Um, the Skill school community is going to be hurting because uh, the school shut down. There may be some families that need child care. Uh, we just don't know all the needs around us. And as a church, um, we need to be open to whatever God would have us to do uh, to, be, uh, to be faithful to serve if we're able to. Um, I love that in your bulletin, there's a quote about Luther um, when, uh, the, when the plague struck uh, Wittenberg. And uh, I won't read all that to you, but you can read that for yourself. Uh, he served faithfully, but he also washed his hands. He served faithfully, but he disinfected the things around him. And he wasn't afraid even to die if he had to, I'm not trying to be an alarmist, 
But because he had a Christian worldview and a God-centered worldview, he knew where he was going to spend eternity. He was able to serve um, without fear, at the same time being being very smart and using common sense to care for himself and others. So that's just for your, for your reading. Um, so we'll be reevaluating the church on a weekly basis, and we'll try and keep everybody as informed as possible as we progress. As you know, if you watch the news, things change almost on a daily basis. But we'll know, for now, we're going to, uh, we won't have service tonight, uh, but we will have prayer meeting Wednesday. No service tonight, but we will have prayer meeting Wednesday, as of right now we're planning on gathering next Sunday morning as well. We want to get a little bit better communication, so we're going to try to get better phone and email this together, and that's going to take a little bit of time, too. Uh, Chris and uh, Chris Fritz and her husband Dennis, they actually are our church cleaners, and they took the initiative to sanitize all the doorknobs, all the handles, and all the pews. Uh, we didn't ask them to, but they let us know that they did, and so they're on, on that, and we're grateful for that as well. That, so, that's enough of that. Um, on another note, um, I'm going to thank Don Mays, who's not here this morning, his brother. Uh, he got a call last night saying his brother is on the verge of passing away in Foster last night or this morning, they were working at using Grand Rapids. His brother's been ill for quite some time, so he's not with us. But uh, he, uh, he did a lot of work here to decorate the church, get ready for Easter, and so had Lynn, who was grateful for that. Um, and uh, if uh, normally on our church website, we only put the sermons, uh, but we're going to go ahead and put the entire service, leave everything up from beginning to end for those who might want to listen to it if we're here this morning. And then Horizon Community Church is on hold until further notice. So by that, by way of announcements, um, we'll go ahead and have our prelude, and then uh, Randy will come up for open service. Take your Bible if you would and open to Psalm 46. Your bullet we have reference to a different scripture reading this morning, but we're going to read Psalm 46. If you'd like to join me, stand together as we read God's word. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, and though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river 
whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we open your word and we read of this mighty refuge and a very present help in times of trouble. And we reflect and think upon the great words penned by Martin Luther when he wrote the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a bulwark that never fails. Our helper amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. And Father, as has already been referenced this morning, our nation is dealing with uh, the, the crisis of this coronavirus. And as Rick has already mentioned, there are some that are living in fear and panic, and there are others who throw caution to the wind. But Father, for those of us who are your children, I pray that we would do not only professing with our lips, but we would live in what we have just read, that we would be still and know that you are our God, and that you are exalted above the nations, and you are exalted above the earth. And thank you for reminding us that you are the Lord of hosts, and that you are with us. I pray that we would demonstrate these things in our lives, and that we would live in the strength and the power of your word. And Father, your word referenced that holy habitation in which God dwells. And your presence makes glad the city of God. I pray that we would dwell in that habitation. Father, we've seen the extremes of response from denial to utter panic and fear. And Father, I just pray that you would help us to be a people of stability a people who stand on the promises of your word and place our faith and our hope and our trust in you. There is no denying that each and every one of us in some way will be impacted by these events, whether it's through the closing down of our schools or businesses or the effects that it has upon our medical society and the hospitals and the financial impact that it has. And Father, I pray, as Rick has already mentioned, that we, your people, would be looking for places to demonstrate the life that we have in Christ and to help one another and to be a comfort to those who are struggling. Father, we have concerns 
within our own body here at Grace Fellowship Church as we meet this morning. There are those who are struggling and suffering with uh, the, the potential loss of loved ones, as we have mentioned our brother John, the condition of his brother. There are those that have great physical needs, and Father, healing is so much needed within our own body. But we are thankful that you are a God who is powerful and capable and can do far beyond that which we can hope for. And so, Father, we entrust these to you. Father, we pray that you would comfort the hearts of those who are struggling and that you would lift up the bodies of those who are weak. And here we are, again, another Lord's Day. And those of us that are here are gathered together for the same purpose that we gather every other Lord's Day, to worship you, to lift up our voices, and to sing, and to submit to your word, asking you to lead us, to guide us, and direct us through it. And we pray that through our time together this morning, that we would encourage one another, and we pray that your word would be powerful, and that it would be effective upon the lives of your people, changing us and conforming us continually into the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray, magnified this morning. Amen. 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 Good sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing root, in my place condemned he stood. In my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Oh, atonement can it be, hallelujah. What a Savior! Lifted up was He to die, it is finished was His cry. Now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah! What a Savior! When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransom home to bring, then anew this song will sing, Hallelujah, what a
You're still my God, my salvation. so much for you to be our rock and our salvation, where we recognize that we live in a sin-cursed world, that we live in a world that is groaning, waiting its redemption. We recognize that we are affected by the things that take place in the world, and we ask you for your mercy and for your grace. We ask you, Father, that during uh, these days of, uh, of confusion and of difficulty and of questions, uh, Lord, that you would be, uh, would be our hope and our rock. Father, we pray that as uh, the days and months uh, go ahead of us, Lord, that you would guard and keep and protect uh, those here in uh, Grace Fellowship, our families, Father, our extended families as well. Father, we ask that you give our leadership wisdom and guidance and that they indeed would lead well. Uh, we ask, Father, that uh, your hand would... Um, would keep back uh, the virus from uh, going as far as some think it might go. Uh, Lord, we recognize that as uh, men are attempting to resolve the problem and you've given them wisdom on how uh, to combat this as you have other diseases in the past, uh, we also recognize even more so that you're the one, Father, who heals. Uh, you're the one who can uh, stop this immediately. And Father, you're the one who we have to run to and go to and give you all glory and all praise and all thanksgiving. There are some among us uh, that are, uh, Father, more compromised than others, both physically uh, and by their age, and we pray to protect them. We pray that this might be an opportunity for us to be a light to the community. Uh, we're not exactly sure how that would work out. First and foremost, we pray uh, that we would live as ambassadors as we leave here. And that we look for opportunities to uh, express, uh, Lord, the hope and the peace that we have in Christ because our eternal uh, lives are secure in you. And those around us, Father, who are um, worried and anxious, uh, we just pray that we be able to, to have a gospel conversation with them and present to them the good news of Jesus Christ. In other centuries, other time periods, uh, when difficulty happened to a nation, uh, there's uh, been uh, small hints of uh, revival and people coming to Christ and people asking questions about you. We pray that would be the same here. And Father, more than anything else, uh, we ask you that you would uh, have your hand upon us, uh, help us uh, to be safe with one another and with our families. And Father, we ask you specifically, more than we would be continuing to look to you uh, for in glory and praise and adoration. Uh, we're so thankful for your goodness. We're thankful for your mercy and thankful that it follows us all the days of our lives. We lift all these things before you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.
Thank you that uh, you have spoken to us uh, in creation. You've spoken to us through your beloved Son, and you've spoken to us and continue to speak to us uh, through your word. And we ask that you speak to us this morning in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Colossians 1, I read from 9 through uh, 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Give me thanks to the Father, who has qualified me to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, as you know, if you've been with us, we've been looking at Paul's prayer here to these saints in Colossae. And if I were to summarize the prayer that we've already looked at, uh, I would probably say something like, uh, he's praying that they would continue to know God. Uh, he's praying that they would be strengthened by God. And they have the power to obey God and have endurance and patience, to be patient and enduring with both the people and the circumstances around them since we live in a soon-cursed world. And he wants them to give joyful thanksgiving to the fact that God has brought them into his kingdom. Now, it took two 45-minute sermons to say all that. And so if you have not uh, heard those on the website, you can go to that, and I hope that you will take advantage of that. We just want to make sure, since one sermon builds on another, we want to make sure that we have a good view of the entire book of Colossians, so we're hoping people take advantage of that. And one thing I've attempted to emphasize last time and I will today is so important, is that the power that he's praying that these Colossian believers are strengthened with is a power that is outside of them. It's not; they don't naturally possess it uh, until the Holy Spirit resides in them. It's the work of the Spirit that gives them the power to, to do the things that Paul's asking them. And the reason that's so important is that the false teachers are telling the Colossians that they really do need more. They need more than Christ. He's not enough. In fact, turn to chapter two, verse eight. So we get a little flavor of what we're headed. Chapter 2, verse 8. In 2.8, Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. Now, we're not there yet, we'll be there soon, and I'll explain it in more detail when we get there. But I just want to give you a small peek of, of the encouragement and the exhortation that Paul is given as he, as he challenges these believers not to be taken captive by these things that detract from Christ. Well, and why? Because there's no need. I mean, verse 9 is a claim that Jesus is God, and verse 10 tells us that these believers have been filled up in him, that which means that God is in them. God abides in them, or God resides in them. And if you're a believer Christian, then it is true that God resides in you, 
the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, takes permanent residence in every genuine believer. So you don't need to be taken captive by human philosophy or tradition and so on. Similar to what Paul reminds us of in Romans 8.32, he says, If God be for us, then who can be against us? It's not just in Colossians. All over the New Testament, Paul states and restates over and over and over that we possess the power of God. We have Christ, and Christ is enough. Some people state this power this way, that when we're first saved, when you become a believing Christian, you're immediately saved from the penalty of sin. You're being saved from the power of sin, and you will be saved in the future from the presence of sin. And that's really justification, sanctification, and glorification. You'll hear those words from time to time in the future as well. This all takes us back to the prayer Paul prays for them, to be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. And since believers are filled up in God, since God's in them, Paul's prayer is not, it's not that they need something new or exciting to help them in the Christian life. No, his prayer is they would understand the very power that God currently indwells them by the Holy Spirit. And we define that glorious power as the same power that God exhibited in creation, in redemption, and in the resurrection. That's the power that he's praying these folks would be strengthened by. I mean, it's mysterious. It almost sounds crazy. But literally, the power that spoke the world into existence out of nothing resides in you if you're a Christian believer. The power that Moses had that parted the Red Sea, that redemptive power as he redeemed Israel, the nation of Israel, from Egyptian bondage, which is the same redemption that we have as God woke up our dead hearts and saved us from our slavery to sin. That redemptive power is in us if indeed we believe in Christians. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is what he's talking about here, that if indeed we're born again Christians, it resides in us. So in our weakness, we craft him for strength. And as we continue to learn more and more about him through the normal means of grace, through attending morning worship, participating in the Lord's Supper and baptism, hearing preaching, reading God's word, fellowshipping with God's people, then the more we understand how great our God is and how big our God is and how mighty our God is, the more we understand how his strength will supply our every need, how his strength will provide our comfort for our every sorrow, and how his strength will give us grace to deal with all of the difficulties we face in this life as we live in the sin-cursed world. It is true that in Christ, in him, we have everything that we need for life and for godliness, as Peter says in 1 Peter. So today we're going to spend all of our time in 12 through 14, and we're going to look at five words in particular. And the words are fairly simple, they're in the text. We look at qualified, delivered, transferred, redeemed, and forgiven. And you might be wondering, as the sermon progresses, why I'm stating and restating the same points over and over and over. Because last week we spent some time looking at regeneration and justification from Titus 3. And I explained at least parts of the process of salvation. 
He attempted to communicate more than anything else that salvation is an act of divine mercy. And the reason it's going to sound like I'm saying the same thing again and again is because the verses that we're looking at today are going to restate and state the same thing. In verse 12, we're told that it's the Father who's qualified us to share inheritance of light. In verse 13, it's the Father who delivers us. In verse 13, it's also the Father who transfers us. And in verse 14, it's through his Son, it's through Christ, that we both have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. It's God who accomplishes this. So last week, we were totally helpless. See, we are actually unqualified. We are not part of the family of God, so we have no inheritance. We are born in sin, so we live in darkness, and we're not part of his kingdom. You see, we have nothing, yet he gives us everything, and he does it through redeeming us and through forgiving us. And we'll come back to that in detail in a moment. These truths are so important that that Paul actually restates them again in verse 21. He doesn't stop saying it, but he says them one more time. Look at verse 21. <coughs> he says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now here he reminds us that we have nothing to offer except our alienation, our hostility toward him, and our evil deeds that we do against him. And he, he's the one who reconciles. He's the one who presents us holy and blameless through the life and the death and the resurrection of his dear son. Again, salvation is according to God's own mercy. Now if that's not enough, He's going to restate it again in chapter 2, verse 13. Look at 2, 13. He says it again. It starts all over again. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now in these verses, we're not just unqualified. We're not just in darkness. We're not just alienated. Here, Paul says what? We are dead. And who can make us alive in Christ? Only God. How? By forgiving our trespasses. And our debts are canceled through Christ's death on the cross. And now the demonic authorities have no rule or power over us. Again, Paul's emphasizing over and over and over that the truths about our depravity and our helplessness and our inability and the only rescue that's available to us that saves us, that redeems us, that reconciles us, that qualifies us, and that delivers us is Christ. I mean, in a real sense, what he's doing is telling and retelling the story that we participate in once a month with the Lord's Supper. It's at the table where we remember his body that was broken for us. It's at the table where we remember the blood that was spilt for us. 
we're forgetful people. And every reminder of our sin and Christ's sacrifice is so crucial in helping us remain grateful for our salvation. I think part of the reason that Paul's instructing them on what happened to them at salvation is if you think about your own conversion experience, when we first become believers, we really don't fully know what happened to us. I know for me, I was uh, 17 years old, and I remember uh, knowing I was a sinner. I remember uh, feeling overwhelmed over my guilt and my shame. And when I heard that Jesus died for me, and that my sin would be forgiven if I put my faith and trust in him, I believed it, and I trusted him for my salvation. But it wasn't until I began reading my Bible and listening to preaching where I began to understand fully how far my sin had really separated me from God. It wasn't until later when I really understood the price that he paid on my behalf, that all that, all that took place. I didn't fully understand all what took place when I trusted Christ. And it really wasn't until I was growing and learning and, and receiving more instruction that I fully began to grapple and understand the real cost of my salvation. Uh, when Deb was pregnant with our first, Courtney, uh, our, our, our daughter, then we have three sons, uh, she developed toxemia. And um, she ended up delivering Courtney six weeks early, and it was through an emergency cesarean section. Now, we knew she was sick. My wife was sick with toxemia. Uh, but we didn't know how dangerously sick she was until we got home and started to read. Now for you young people, let me just tell you, uh, some of you young people, we had, we couldn't just ask Siri, what is toxemia, and get a long explanation. We couldn't ask that in the hospital. So we knew she was sick, we knew that her body was rejecting the pregnancy, but we didn't know how sick. We had to go home and open a book. It had a hard thing on one side, and a hard thing had pages in the middle. And we had, to, we had to look in the glossary to find the word toxemia. Some of you may have never done that before. I'm not really sure. <laughs> but, we, we, but when we really learned how her body, we didn't know that we kind of knew it at the time, but not to the extent that we learned afterward, that her body was on verge of convulsion, really at any minute. And it wasn't that the baby was in danger, but my wife was in danger. And when we began to understand more and more that all we went through, it us even more grateful that Deb was okay and that Courtney was okay because not every mom has, has that same outcome. I think that's real similar to our, our salvation experience. That God regenerates our heart and we hear God's word and we believe and we're justified in His sight. Uh, but the moment we're saved, all we know is that we're saved and we're grateful for that. But we learn what happened as we grow. We learn what happened as we read and sit under God's word. So you see, we, we know from the early part of the letter that these Colossians did in fact hear, understand, and they believed the duties about Christ. Which means we know that they already understood that they were sinners and that Christ saved them from their sin. And now what Paul's doing is explaining the finer points of what happened to them in the process of salvation and that's why he's going to state it and restate it so they can continue to grasp it. I've said this before, but when you're, when you're saved from a cataclysmic event, I described to you a few weeks ago about my neighbor across the street whose um, 
whose ship crashed into an aircraft carrier, and uh, several people died on that ship. And it's been 50 years since the accident, and those who survived still get together on an annual basis. When you have something like that, or a 9-11 experience, oftentimes uh, the people who are involved in, in that, number one, they never forget it. Number two, it oftentimes changes their life. They never forget the anniversary. It, it is something that is absolutely life-changing uh, at, at multiple levels. And yet when we, when we begin to understand, not that we're saved from a cataclysmic event here on earth, but we are rescued. Our eternal souls are rescued from hell and damnation and judgment. And then we consider how unworthy we are and how unholy we are and how we've lived our lives as God's enemies. And we understand our state of rebellion and where our final destination will be. And then we understand that the price he paid to save us, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That should transform us forever and move us to express thanksgiving to him for the rest of our lives. This is why doctrine is so important, because this is what anchors our faith. Paul's explaining the doctrine of salvation to these young Christians, and by saying it over and over and over, he's desperate for them to fully understand it. So to jump back into our text, the first of those five words he gives us in verse 12. He says, Give me thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. And we touched on this last week a little bit, but I just want to ask a question. I mean, if you, maybe some of you have received an inheritance before. If you, received, if you have received one, or you will be receiving one, most cases we know that inheritances are passed down through the family bloodline. You have wealthy parents, or, or you had your only child, or even had siblings. In most cases, um, you will qualify for a share in the inheritance if indeed you're part of the bloodline of your parents. You can lose an inheritance, you can behave inappropriately, and be pulled out of that inheritance. But in general, inheritances are simply part of the family. And clearly, the inheritance Paul's talking about here is not about. It's not about houses, it's not about land, and it's not about trust funds. The inheritance that Paul's talking about here is one of eternal life. It's the inheritance of the kingdom of God. It's a place that Jesus promises he's going to take us to so we can be with him forever. Peter describes this as something that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, and that's kept in heaven for us. The fact that Paul states, it's so important, that God has qualified them to share the inheritance of the saints in light does tell us that there was a time when they were not qualified. You see, if you're now qualified to share it, the assumption would be before you were qualified, then you were unqualified or even disqualified, and it's only the Father who qualifies us. The reason why a person would not be qualified to share in the eternal heavenly inheritance is similar to the reason why you wouldn't qualify in a worldly inheritance because to qualify you must be part of the family. To qualify you must be a son or a daughter. And nobody is born into the family of God unless they're born again. So our qualification for this inheritance begins with a new birth. Now, all humanity 
in a technical sense, are children of God because they're our creator. In Acts 17, Paul mentions that we're all God's offspring. But none of us at birth are God's spiritual children. None of us at birth are part of God's eternal family. In John 8, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, uh, he says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He's speaking to the Pharisees, but he's also speaking to all of us. We're all of our father, the devil, because of our sin among the born. And because of this, we are by nature and by birthright, we do not qualify for any inheritance because we're not part of the family of God. We are unqualified and unable to qualify ourselves. You can't fill out a form to get qualified. You can't do enough things to be qualified. You can't get an education to be qualified. It's a qualification that we can never attain. One commentator describes the word qualifies as to make sufficient, to render fit. The Father made them fit to partake of the inheritance of the saints by placing them in Christ, in whom they enjoy a standing which makes them the objects of God's grace. What that means is we did not, and we cannot, and we have not done anything to cause ourselves to be qualified, but being qualified for this inheritance is outside of ourselves. And when you go back to Colossians 1.4, we know that these Colossian believers are qualified because Paul's thanking them, thanking God that they understood the grace of God and truth. They put their faith in Christ to save them. And because of this, because they're saved, because they're in Christ, they qualify now for the inheritance because they belong to a new family. They have a new bloodline. They're, they're, they have a blood-bought bloodline. They're part of the true eternal family of God. And this is what Paul refers to as the saints in life. Not only are they qualified to share the inheritance, the second part of the text says, tells us again what God has done for them. It says, he has delivered them from the domain of darkness. Now it's kind of a small thing, but notice that Paul moves from speaking about you or them, and he changes the pronoun to we or us. <coughs> as he's writing, as he's dictating a letter, he's probably just getting so excited about all that God has done in Christ. So instead of explaining, hey, this is what happened to you, no, he's not saying it isn't just you, it's us, it's we, it's all believers, including me. He says we, we are delivered from the domain or power of darkness. Again, meaning, first of all, at one point, we were under the domain or power of darkness. We don't need deliverance from darkness, but we're never under its power in the first place. It's certain here that Paul is thinking about his own life, thinking about how he persecuted Christians, thinking about how he threw them into prison, thinking about how he persecuted Christ, and the whole time he thought he was doing God a favor. God delivered from this as well. Now, of course, this lines up with what I just said about being born in his family of Satan. You're going to notice as we continue through here, these three words, qualified and, 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 and delivered and transferred, they're all interconnected and they all overlap. Our being born into the family of Satan means that we're born under the domain of darkness. We're under the power of darkness. 
And that word darkness means the realm of sin and evil. It's possible that it's figurative reference to the devil or Satan. It also simply means evil world or evil realm. I mean, darkness throughout Scripture is a metaphor for evil and sin. We know that. Just as light is a metaphor for righteousness and the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the light of the world. Remember, when all of God's wrath was poured out upon his son, that darkness held the land for a period of three hours. There's a small phrase also, when, when Judas was betraying the Lord Jesus, John references a smaller phrase. When he leaves, it says, and it was night. That nighttime uh, signified the darkness and the sin of the betrayal itself. In John 3, the verdict against us, the verdict against mankind, is that men love darkness rather than the light because our deeds are evil. We need deliverance from this darkness. We, we need deliverance from our bodies to sin. And the deliverance mentioned here is a deliverance from a power of which we are slaves. It's more than a deliverance, it's actually a rescue. The commentator describes it as a rescue that comes, quote, from the strong arm of God who is a mighty conqueror. Only he can rescue from sin and evil. Only he can rescue from Satan's rule and reign. Only he has the power to conquer sin and death. Think about before you became a Christian. Living a life of secrecy. Living a life of dishonesty. Keeping things away from those closest to you. More than likely trapped in lies and trapped in immorality and shame and guilt. Or, or maybe you were maybe you're just a self-righteous moralist. Maybe you just thought you were better than everybody else. Maybe you thought you were right in your standing before God. Maybe you looked down on others and never saw your own sin. And yet, knowing in both those cases, deep within your soul, that you'll never pass the bar of God's judgment. In all these cases, no power to change, no power to be free, no power to be delivered. This darkness is Paul's talking about symbolizes our separation from God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they hid from God. The fellowship and the friendship and the relationship they had with God was severed, and they, they no longer had access to his presence. They no longer lived in the light of his glory. Now, because of sin, they're under the domain of darkness. They're expelled from the garden. They're aware that there was nothing they could do to re-enter God's presence. They could not approach the unapproachable light of his glory on their own merit, or by their own goodness, or their own purity. They were now prisoners and captives and bondage to sin. But thanks be to God, because Paul says he's delivered us from that domain of darkness. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. And these new believers, as Paul is explaining this, may be hearing this so clearly for the first time. And what a joy to hear first, to hear first that they're qualified and they now have a future inheritance. The future is as bright as ever. But God didn't just save them to rescue them. And so they'll stumble and bumble through life until they make it to their eternal inheritance. No, their deliverance from the power of darkness has present implications. So they do have the power and the grace to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. They do have the power and the grace to put to death sin. 
to put off the old self and put on the new self. They, by the grace of God, are no longer in Satan's family, no longer under his rule and his reign as Christian believers. And this moves us right to the next thing Paul mentions when he would when he says that they should joyously, they should be joy, joyously thankful for, and then in verse 13 states, because he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now remember I said he's all over that. We're born into the family of Satan. We're under the domain and rule and evil of Satan. And since Paul's telling us we've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, this means that apart from God transferring us, we not only live in the family of the devil, we're also citizens in his kingdom. 1 John 5, 19 tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That verse, Calvin writes, under the term world, the apostle no doubt includes the whole human race by saying that a life in the wicked one, he represents it as being under the dominion of Satan. Now, without running into a real long rabbit trail, that would be completely off topic. Let me at least say that the, the power of Satan, the power that he has, is a delegated and a regulated power. There isn't a cosmic battle taking place where Satan wins sometimes and God wins sometimes and we're all on pins and needles to hoping that God can just eke it out and win in the end. No. God is sovereign. He rules over all. But scripture does call Satan, the god of this world, the prince of this world, and the ruler of this world. And as Paul describes our state before we are Christians, he shows that Satan's power is real and it's active. Ephesians 2.2 says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan's considered a power, and he's clearly still at work. But again, his power, his rule, his reign are subject to the rule and reign of our sovereign God. He has a delegated power. He still answers to Almighty God. But what this does mean is we're born into his kingdom, and we follow his rule and reign. And our union with Christ transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son. This word transfer is the same idea where a king would come and conquer a foreign land. And all those who were not killed or executed in the nation were brought back to the conquering king's land in order to become his subjects. And when you're transferred into the kingdom of Christ, the expectation is you're going to be you're going to become not only loyal to your new king, but conforming to the king's decrees, the king's edicts, the king's commands, and even the king's character. Because he brought you in, and now you have a different citizenship. And when you put all of these three words together, it's staggering we think of what we're born into originally, and then what we're brought into by God. We're born unqualified. Born outside the family of God, born with no inheritance, born under the rule and reign of Satan in sin and darkness, and we're without hope 
and without God, without any hope of ever being in his kingdom. And yet through his own mercy, through his substitutionary perfect atoning sacrifice, we now qualify to have an eternal inheritance with other believers. We are now free, free from sin and Satan and darkness, and, we have, and we're citizens of a new kingdom where Jesus rules and reigns. Where we are now. I can't think of a better illustration than the one that John Bunyan uses in Pilgrim's Progress. I put it in your bulletin uh, because the language is a little bit, if you don't perceive me on that full sheet of paper. <coughs> I took an extra amount of the book. I want you to follow along as I read it. It's kind of written in King James Old English, so it's easier to follow along than hear you read it. This is a dialogue between Christian and Satan, or Christian and Apollyon. Um, the burden on Christian's back has been freed. He's been freed and released from his sin. We look at the cross. The burden rolled away. He's been transferred into the kingdom of God. And as he's walking along the path, Apollyon or Satan approaches him, and here's the conversation. Um, I'll say Satan instead of uh, A-P-O-L is Satan. And the C-H-R obviously is Christian. Satan says, Whence came you? And whither are you bound? Christian says, I'm come from the city of destruction, which is the place of all evil, and I'm going to the city of Zion. Satan. By this I perceive thou art one of my subjects, for all that country is mine, and I'm the prince and God of it. How is it then that thou hast run away from thy king? Were it not that I hope thou mayest do me more service, I would strike thee now at one blow to the ground. Christian says, I was indeed born in your dominions, but your service was hard and your wages such as a man could not live on, for the wages of sin is death. Therefore, when I was come up to years, I did, as other considered persons do, look at it perhaps I might bend myself. Satan says, There is no prince that will thus lightly lose his subjects, neither will I as yet lose thee. But since thou complainest of thy service and wages, be content to go back. And what, a, and what our country will afford, I do here promise to give thee, Christian. But I have left myself to another, even to the king of princes. And how can I, with fairness, go back with thee? Satan says, Thou hast done this according to the proverb, change a bad for a worse. But it's ordinary for those that have professed themselves his servants after a while to give him the slip and return again to me. Do thou so too, and all shall be well. Christian says, I have given him my faith and sworn my allegiance to him. How then can I go back from this and not be hanged as a traitor? Ah, thou didst the same by me, and yet I am willing to pass by all. If now thou wilt turn again and go back. Christian concludes. What I promised thee was in my non-age, and besides, I count that the prince, under whose banner I now stand, is able to absolve me, yea, and to pardon also what I did as to my compliance with thee. And besides, O thou destroying Apollyon, to speak truth, I like his service. I like his wages. I like his servants. I like his government. I like his company and country better than thine. Therefore, 
Leave off to persuade me farther. I am his servant, and I will follow him. I love that. Born into the family of Satan. Born under his rule and reign and dominion and power, evil sin. Born in the kingdom of Satan. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And through no thought of our own, no desire of our own, no attempt of our own, no merit of our own, no righteousness of our own, no good works of our own, bringing nothing to the table except our disqualification, our slavery, our bondage, and his marvelous grace and marvelous mercy. He qualifies you for an inheritance with all believers for all time. He delivers you from the power and domain of sin and darkness, and he transfers you into the kingdom of his beloved son, the son of his love. If you want to see how will you say it one more time. Now, my sermon title, there's five key words, and we'll look at three. And I'm viewing these last two words in verse 14 separately than the first three, because here, Paul makes a purposeful switch as we close. Now he begins to describe the work the Son did on our behalf that explains why we're qualified, why we're delivered, and why we've transferred. It's because in the Son, in Christ Jesus, we have two of the most precious gifts known to man, redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Without these two things, we'd still be unqualified. We'd still be in darkness, and we would still be under the rule and reign of Satan. In Christ, we have redemption. The meaning of the word is so full that we need to have a better understanding of it. It means to release or set free with the implied analogy to the process of freeing a slave. It means to liberate. Going further, the word means a releasing affected by the payment of a ransom. It's a word that commonly was used to describe purchased money in, in, in freeing slaves. Barclay describes it as the buying back of something that was in the power of someone or someone else. Something else. Just like the other three words we looked at, the fact that in Christ we have redemption implies that we are in a state prior to Christ where we needed to be redeemed. Which means prior to conversion we are slaves. Romans 6 describes us of slaves of sin and slaves of impurity. Titus 3 says we're slaves for our own passions. We know that the wages or the penalty of our sin is eternal death and hell. As slaves, we are helpless. We are powerless. Our lives are hopeless. We have no possibility of freeing ourselves from the slavery we're born into. What redemption means is more than freedom. Christ didn't come into our lives and loosen our chains and let us go. No, to free a slave, a price had to be paid. To free a slave, an exchange had to take place. To free a slave, somebody has to pay a ransom. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus tells us that he didn't come to serve. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. The concept of idea, or idea of ransom and redemption, is not just in the New Testament. You see, because sin involves punishment, because the wages of sin is death, and without the shed of blood, there's no forgiveness. Each and every time an Israelite sinned, it brought judgment upon the sinner, and a sacrifice had to be made to pay for the sin. Something or someone had to die as a substitute in place of the sinner. The sinner needed redemption. The sinner needed a ransom. 
The sinner leaves some of the pay. And throughout the Old Testament, we know that lambs and rams and goats and bulls were sacrificed to redeem or set free the sinner from his just punishment. The animal sacrifice was the ransom payment in order to redeem the sinner or buy back or liberate the sinner. And here in Colossians 1, when Paul explains that we have redemption in Christ, he means that Christ paid the ransom for our redemption. That we who were slaves of sin and under God's wrath, deserving his just punishment, were purchased. We were bought back, freed from our bondage and slavery and the wrath we deserve because the Lord Jesus sacrificed his life for ours on the cross, paying for our sin, dying in our place. Peter explains it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The idea that Jesus was without spot or blemish is so crucial to our redemption. The only sacrifice that God would accept as a payment of our sin was a perfect one, one without spot, in this case, one who was sinless. You know, the, the Gettys get it right when we sing the song, In Christ Alone. And they, they say, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul was counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. And the results of our redemption, similar to the results in the Old Testament, when an animal was sacrificed for a guilty sinner, the results are in verse 14. The forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. The phrase for forgiveness has a rich meaning too. It means to release as from bondage or imprisonment. It's the act of God at Calvary, paying the penalty of human sin, thus satisfying the just demands of his holy law, putting away sin, and bidding it go away. You know, Psalm 103 tells us he takes our sins and throws them as far as east, is from the West. Beloved, as we wrap this up, we are qualified and we are delivered and we are transferred into his kingdom because Christ paid the penalty of our sin on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Colossians 1 restates it this way, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We have peace because we're redeemed. We have peace because we're forgiven. We have peace because God established it with us through the precious gift of his Son, who is called the Prince of Peace. You know, all of this and so much more happened to you when you trusted Christ through the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus to save you. You have a glorious inheritance awaiting for you, and you've been freed from that previous bondage of sin. And then now live and serve a new King Jesus, who has welcomed you and transferred you into his glorious kingdom. So we live and we walk in such a way that demonstrates both our gratitude and our allegiance to him. Now, I wonder this morning, if, if all of us in here have peace with God, I wonder if you're fully confident that your sins have been forgiven. 
I wonder if everyone in here can give testimony that Christ has ransomed you and paid for your sin and you're free from his wrath. Or do you still carry that burden on your back because you've never admitted to God that you're a helpless sinner and that he's the only one that can free you from the sin that you're admitting to? You know, if that happens to be you this morning, I just ask, what are you waiting for? Life's a vapor. It appears for a little time and it vanishes away. I mean, those of you who do not know Christ, if it's not the coronavirus, something else, we live in a sin-cursed world, death is around the corner for all of us. Today is the day of salvation. So if indeed this is you, then admit to God you're a sinner, express your need of Christ to save you, confess your belief and understanding that he died and rose again in your place. He's the ransom for your sin and put your faith in him today. And then come, please, talk to us about baptism. He will cleanse you. He will forgive you. You'll be able to testify of his power to deliver you and bring you into the kingdom of his beloved son. And for those of you this morning who are Christian believers, walking through these well-worn paths is a huge blessing as we understand again and again all that God has done for us in Christ. As you leave here this morning, I pray you have a more full understanding of all that he has, in fact, done for you in redeeming you. The song we're about to close with is a new one to us. Uh, it really is the theme of the Colossians. And the chorus, we're going to be talking about the fact that there's nothing in the world that compares with the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I come before you this morning and thank you that we who are unqualified are qualified. We who are under the domain of darkness now walk in your marvelous light. We who are born in the kingdom of family of Satan, Father, are in the kingdom of your beloved Son. Father, we need the Holy Spirit to impress these truths upon us so that when we do in fact live and we leave here and go our separate ways, that we're grateful and thankful for all that you have done with us in Christ. We are forgetful people, and you bring these things before us so that we will not forget you. And Lord, how I pray that you help us to continue to express our thanksgiving uh, in our own personal lives and how we live, and the prayers that we offer to you, and even now as we close in song. Christ, and we pray. Amen.
desire is to know you more, to be found in you, and known as yours, possessed by faith, what I could not earn, all surpassing gift of righteousness. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Oh, to know the power of your risen life, and to know you in your sufferings, to become like you in your death, my Lord, so with you to live and never die. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you. Now may the God who has qualified you, who has delivered you, who has transferred you, who has redeemed you, and who has forgiven you, may this God be with you, watch over you, care for you, as you walk faithfully and desire to please him. And be thankful for all that he's done toward you in Christ. And all God's people say. Amen.